0: My connection to him is back in the early 80s when I was in seminary. He was one of my favorite professors there. He taught me Greek, New Testament Greek, with passion and love and a sense of humor, but a sense of integrity to the Word of God and very practical as well. I even, Dr. Taylor, I even remember one of your chapel sermons, and the title was Do It Now. I don't know if you remember that, but (laughs) it's been a little bit of a a motto of mine. I can't say that I've lived up to it fully, but it's helped me out many, many times, actually. So uh, Dr. Taylor is from one of the uh, best seminaries in the United States uh, called uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. It's in Dallas, Texas, and he uh, is the senior professor of Old Testament studies there, spent his, his entire life, uh in love with the text of scripture and the word of God. So he's an amazing linguist. He can read a whole bunch of unknown, strange languages. Um and that's where his expertise lies. But as I said, he's joyfully practical and uh, with great application, so I'm so happy to have him teach. He's going to be teaching on Jonah. Uh, And I'm going to ask, I have the outline, uh, rough outlines of his speeches. Could somebody come and pass these out, make sure everybody gets one? Um, Thank you, Igor and Eric. Thank you so much. Yeah. (laughs) All right, well, let's just open in prayer. And... This session will go to about uh, 10:15, and then we'll have a break with uh, coffee. Then we're going to have our regular uh, church service time, and he'll be the speaker for uh, that as well. And then we have uh, a break. We'll have an amazing uh, potluck meal together downstairs. And after that, the third session of the day. So let's open with prayer. Dear Father, we Thank you so much uh, for your love for us and your careful revelation of yourself to us in in the word of God. Lord, thank you for uh, reaching out to us, and we think of Jonah reaching out to uh, people who needed to hear you, and Lord, we need to hear you, and we need to hear your prophet uh, speak to us today. Uh, so thank you, Lord, and bless Doctor Taylor as he comes. Thank you that he can be here with his dear wife as well, and we always pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Doctor Taylor.
1: Good morning, from Dallas, Texas. So glad my wife Diane is able to be here today, and she's a associate headmaster at a Christian school in the Dallas area, Trinity Christian Academy, and she oversees a lower school, a middle school, and a high school of a total of about 1,500 students. And so appreciate very much the ministry she's having. What a delight to get back in touch with your pastor after so many years. Uh, It was just a wonderful blessing to hear from him about a year ago as we talked about this meeting uh, today and tomorrow, and uh, we're just so privileged and pleased uh, to be here with you. And I've got to tell you a little story about what happened yesterday. Diane and I threw all our luggage in the vehicle, and we're ready to head to the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport to catch a flight first to Phoenix and then on to Monterey. And uh, I cranked the vehicle and the radio had had been sent to a country music station. And the very first thing we heard when the vehicle started up was Merrill Haggard singing... You've got a friend in California. <laughs> That's the very first thing we heard. You've got a friend in California, Merrill Haggard, singing that song on the radio. Now, I'd like to know, how did you guys work that out anyway? I mean, what, what did you do to prearrange that? I'd like to know how that, how that worked out. Uh, but uh, great to be here with you. Now, as I thought about what we might do for these four sessions that uh, we have together, I was thinking of what would lend itself to this type of thing. The book of Ruth, for example, has four chapters. That would have made a nice study. Uh, The book of Jonah has four short chapters. And so that came to mind as well. And uh, so what I'd like to do is focus our thinking for four sessions on the experiences of an Old Testament prophet whose name means dove in Hebrew. Yonah in Hebrew means dove, although we will see this guy was really pretty much of a hawk when it came to his attitude toward other uh, people. So uh, the book of Jonah, let's see if I'm going to come up on the screen here. I think I push this one are we up there so I'll let you get that going there if you can Uh, I saw it come up on the screen back here and it didn't come up on this one so I'm not sure what happened there So go the other direction. It's coming up back there, but go... All right, yeah, go back to the very front. Uh, There we go. So the book of Jonah, that's what we want to focus on. And did I hear you say we have until uh, 1015, Nathan? Yeah, good, okay. Now... I noticed on the bulletin board there uh, some titles posted that I gave Nathan a long time ago. And as I continue to think about this, some things change. So there's a little bit of difference there. I hope it's not too confusing. Uh, In the first chapter of Jonah... We have the story of somebody who is running from God and discovers that there's a very, very high cost for doing so. Have you ever felt like running from God? And by that what I mean is, have you ever known deep in the recesses of your heart that God wanted you to do something? And you just were resistant to it, didn't want to do it, maybe even refused to do it. I'm going to be honest with you, I've been there. Maybe your pastor's been there on occasion. And maybe right now you can reflect back on a time when you were there, just felt like running from God God's servants sometimes feel that way Even a prophet like Jonah can come to the place where he fully understands what it is God wants him to do and just doesn't want to do it And so this is going to be what the book of Jonah is mainly about. What a fascinating book this is. People debate what kind of literature it is. Is it a parable, for example? Parables can be powerful ways of communicating, as we know our Lord often taught through parables. Is the book of Jonah just a parable, kind of a fictitious character that's the story of whom is told to get a point across? There'd be nothing wrong with that if Jonah were a parable. Many people think it is. I don't think so. Is it an allegory? Some people have tried to explain it that way, that uh, Jonah stands for Israel, and uh, Israel got swallowed up in the Babylonian captivity, just like the fish swallowed Jonah, but Israel was later released from that captivity, just as the fish vomited forth Jonah and so forth. But I don't think that really fits what this book is—it really seems like a historical account, filled, of course, with miracle. There are things that are happening here that are beyond the realm of the ordinary. But uh, Jonah, I take as a historical story, told for a teaching purpose, and in it, not only did Israel see herself, but I think we can also see ourselves as we look at this story. And the book of Jonah, I can break down into various responses to things that are happening. And so I'm going to use the word respond quite a bit. I think that has a lot to do with what Jonah is about. And so in Jonah 1, 1 to 3, what do we find? We find Jonah responding to the Lord's first commission on his life. There'll be another one later in chapter 3, but let's look first at this response that Jonah gives to the Lord's commission on his life. Listen as I read verses 1, 2, and 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. Why? To flee from the Lord. He's a prophet who doesn't want to prophesy. He's a minister who doesn't want to minister He's a believer who doesn't like what God is likely to do in Nineveh, and that is to forgive them and to restore them. Now, what about this man, Jonah? He's mentioned only one other time in all of the Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. And in 2 Kings 14 verse 25 we learn a little bit about the historical background of Jonah. He was a prophet who prophesied during the reign of a king by the name of Jeroboam II. And we know a little bit about this king's reign. He ruled in Israel from 793 to 753. And so Jonah's ministry, therefore, falls into the first half of the 8th century B.C. So think about 2800 years ago that's when this man Jonah was uh, living and prophesying and the Lord wants to send him to Nineveh now Jonah when he gets this commission where is he he's somewhere in the land of Israel where is Nineveh well if you go 500 or 550 miles to the northeast Uh, Over on the Tigris River, on the east side of the Tigris River, there's a city called Nineveh. It's occupied by a group of people that are known as the Assyrians. Uh, In our modern news today, we're hearing a bit about the city of Mosul. Have you heard reference to Mosul in Iraq and the ISIS forces that have been in Mosul and the attempt to push them out of Mosul? Mosul. Mosul's on the west side of the Tigris. If you go across that river to the east side, that's where Nineveh is. And so in a sense, Nineveh has been in our recent news because of the activities on the west side of the river with the city of Mosul. It's in that part of Iraq. And and so this is where God wants to send Jonah. Now, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Instead, he goes down to the city of Joppa and looks for a boat that's going where? It's going to Tarshish. Friends, you can't get to Nineveh on a boat in the Mediterranean Sea. It's not going to get you there. (laughs) And so here is Jonah looking for a boat that will take him in the very opposite direction of where he is supposed to go. God has told him to go east. Jonah looks for a boat that's headed west. And we think Tarshish is a city over in western Spain, not too far from Gibraltar. And for Jonah, that would have been the limits of his world as far as the westward direction is concerned. You couldn't go any further in his day than that part of Spain. They didn't know what, lo- what was out there beyond uh, the coast of Spain. And so it would be like this. Suppose God's commission came to me. I, I live in Dallas, Texas. And suppose the Lord said to me, go to Boston. I've got something I want you to do in the city of Boston. And so understanding full well God's commission to go to Boston, let's say I go out to DFW, the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and I book a flight with American Airlines. But guess where I'm going? I'm going to Monterey, California. More or less the opposite direction. That's kind of what Jonah is doing here. He's doing just the opposite of what God told him to do. Now, Diane and I were, were in Joppa some years ago just south of the modern city of Tel Aviv in Israel. And uh, so we visited Joppa, known in Hebrew as Yafo. And uh, when we got to Yafo, I noticed that there was a kind of a tourist-type thing where you could pay a fare, get on a boat, and go out into the Mediterranean Sea. And I said to Diane, we've got to do this. And kind of think of ourselves like Jonah, sailing from Joppa out into the Mediterranean. Not to Tarshish, but just a little loop out there where you could see the lights of Tel Aviv and so forth. And so we did that. We kind of relived the experience of Jonah as he began his journey to Tarshish. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, where you knew God wanted you to do something And your conclusion was, I'm going to do more or less the opposite of what God wants me to do. Or turn the coin over. Maybe there's something God didn't want you to do. And you decided, recklessly, I'm going to do that anyway. In other words, you're going to do just the opposite of what God wants you to do. This is the Jonah experience. Now, anybody familiar with Old Testament literature, when they read the first couple of verses of uh, the book of Jonah here, they immediately sense something's wrong. Because this is formulaic language that we have at the beginning of the book. Uh, we often have this language used in commissioning of prophets in the Old Testament. Here's the way it's supposed to work the way this language is supposed to work is when we read that the word of the Lord came to so and so. And said, arise and do thus and so. The next thing we expect to hear is, the prophet arose and he did what the Lord told him to do. And so when we read in, uh, in verse 3 that Jonah went down to Joppa and found a boat headed to Tarshish, we know that this is not the way a prophet is supposed to be behaving Now, what is it that's troubling Jonah? Why doesn't he want to go to Nineveh? I suggest two things. Number one, he's aware of the reputation of the Ninevites. And number two, he's aware of the reputation of the Lord. What do we know about the Ninevites? These folks were brutally cruel and their reputation had spread throughout the Mediterranean world in Jonah's day and people feared the Ninevites they did brutal things it might not be too much of a stretch to liken them to uh, ISIS and the sorts of things we've heard about ISIS in terms of their very very cruel uh, activity we have records from the time of Jonah and before from the Assyrian Empire. And here is one Assyrian king boasting of how he treated people that his military overcame. He says, I flayed, he means skins them. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. That's pretty sordid stuff. And this is the kind of thing the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were known for in terms of their brutality. This comes from the ninth century and uh, just as the century before, the time of Jonah. Jonah would, would have been aware of this kind of reputation. He would have known about this. Here's another remark that uh, also comes from this same period of time. Um, and I'm having trouble reading it off that one. It's, in strife and conflict I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off of some their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the, and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. This is kind of how the Assyrians handled warfare. Uh, what I would suggest is Jonah knows about this. This reputation of the Assyrians spread throughout the world of Jonah's day. He knew about this. Would you want to go and bring a message to folks like this? Would you want to go and station yourself in their midst and proclaim God's word? Maybe it's not too surprising, after all, that Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh. He knew of the reputation of these folks. But there's something else going on with Jonah. We don't really get the full picture until we get to chapter 4 of this book. But in chapter 4 and verse 2, we're going to find Jonah saying this, I knew what kind of God you are. You forgive. You relent. You have compassion. You're long-suffering. And Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, that is why I forestalled to go to Nineveh. I knew you'd find a way to forgive these folks. I knew you'd find a way to show compassion to them. That's the kind of God you are. And Jonah is angry with God because he doesn't think people like this deserve forgiveness. You ever felt that way? Do you have a list somewhere with some names on it that would just be inconceivable if God were to forgive such people? They have done such awful things. And uh, maybe some names come to mind in modern times where we just could hardly imagine somebody being forgiven for the terrible, terrible things that they've done. And so Jonah wants to run from the Lord. Now, surely he has thought of words that we find in the Psalms. Psalm 139, verses 7 and following The psalmist asked this question. I wonder if Jonah ever asked himself this question. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Folks, there's really no place we can flee from the Lord. Surely Jonah understands this. He cannot hide from God in Tarshish. And uh, so the whole proposition is ridiculous when you think about it. And so this is Jonah's response to what the Lord wants him to do. In verses 4 and 5, we have the Lord responding to Jonah's disobedience. And here's what verses 4 and 5 say. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo uh, into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. There are four things that uh, we're told the Lord hurled or threw forth in the book of Jonah. One of them is this wind. The Lord threw a great wind on the sea. The other is a storm. The Lord threw a great storm. And in verse 5, we're going to find the sailors hurling the cargo overboard. And then after that, Jonah gets hurled overboard. This is a a theme that is developed in the first chapter, things that get thrown in chapter 1. And, uh, and so the Lord brings this great storm about on the sea. Now, one thing is mysterious here. Uh, when you're in the midst of a violent storm on a sea as large as the Mediterranean Sea, With waves, who knows how high, in the midst of a violent storm like this. A storm so violent that seasoned sailors are fearing for their life. How is it that somebody can be asleep in the middle of a storm like this? If you've ever been in a life-threatening situation like that, I doubt if you thought it was time to take a nap. You know, we don't think about napping when we're in the midst of a life-threatening disaster. How is it that this man can be sleeping when sailors, experienced sailors, are fearing for their very life? The word that's used for sleep here is not the ordinary word for sleep. It's the same word we see in Genesis where it says the, the Lord caused a deep sleep to come upon the man, and he removed a rib and fashioned the woman. That's an unusual sleep. We see it in the book of Daniel where as a result of the tremendous revelations that God gives to Daniel, uh, Daniel fell into a sleep. He's exhausted as a result of the circumstances that he's placed in. I suspect what's going on with Jonah here is he is deeply depressed. He's not just taking a nap. He is exhausted. If you've ever wrestled with God and tried to resist God and tried to run from God, that is an exhausting sort of emotional or spiritual experience. And so Jonah is just beside himself as a result of this journey that he is on and his resistance against God. And so the Lord's response to Jonah's disobedience at this point is to send a storm to try to awaken him from his lethargy and his bad plan and then in the next section verses 6 through 11 we have the sailors responding to Jonah's behavior and here's what we see in these verses how can you sleep get up Call on your God, maybe he will notice us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for the making of all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now... Uh, When the captain came to Jonah, who's in this deep sleep of depression, and says to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. This expression, get up, is the very thing the Lord had said to him at the first commission. The Lord had said, arise, go to Nineveh. And I have to wonder, as Jonah in a sleepy frame of mind, jolted suddenly awake by the captain and hearing the word arise if he doesn't wonder if the Lord's not on his case again, that perhaps this is the Lord once again demanding that he go to Nineveh, but it's actually the captain, and his question makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? How can he sleep at a time like this? Now, the captain and the sailors on board, these are pagans, and they have various deities that they worship. In the ancient world, you had a pantheon of deities. And often each country had a particular deity that they associated with, and then there were other lesser deities as well. And these sailors have prayed each to his own god. Various deities they've appealed to, to relieve them from the life-threatening storm. And and so the captain says, get up and call on your god. Maybe that's the deity that hasn't been approached yet. And maybe that deity will take notice of us in a way that these other deities have not. And, uh, and then they cast lots. I wish I knew more about how this practice of casting lots in the Old Testament worked. We read about it a good bit in the Old Testament scriptures. The casting of lots is the way of figuring something out. Probably the dice were something like our dice, except that they were uh, probably color-coded. So alternating whites and blacks as colors on the, on the dice. And maybe if uh, two white dice come up, the answer is yes. Two dark ones, the answer is no. And if you get one of each, it's uh, roll again. i <laughs> not, not sure what the answer is. But uh, at any rate, they, they roll dice here. They cast lots and uh, try to figure out who it is that is uh, responsible for this. Now look at the questions they're asking in verse 8 of Jonah. Uh, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? This looks like small talk, <laughs> doesn't it? You know, if you're on a journey, maybe in an airport somewhere, and you're sitting next to a stranger, you might say, well, where are you from? Or what do you do for a living? Or where are you headed? Uh, What's your country? Things like that. Is that what they're doing here? Wouldn't make any sense, would it? To engage in small talk in the midst of a storm like they're in here. No, this is not at all what they're doing. These are religious questions. What they're trying to get a bead on with these questions is what deity might he be associated with? If they can track down the country that he's from, the people group that he's uh, originating from, uh, if they can get the answers to these types of questions... That will point them in the direction of a deity that may be responsible for the problem that they are, uh, that they are in. So he's, he's being asked questions to try to ferret out who his God is and whether that God might be responsible for his, their problem. Now in verse 9, Jonah gives a wonderful confession of faith. He has a doctrinal statement that he's living by here. He says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, isn't this interesting? Here is a prophet in rebellion to the will of God for his life, running from the Lord, not eager to embrace what God wants him to do, and he still can articulate good theology. I'm a Hebrew. Uh, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You know, sometimes our intellectual assents to what we believe do not rightly translate into how we behave in our lives. You can have a good theological statement of things you believe and still by your life betray the very thing that you're confessing with your lips. This is what Jonah's doing. And if you had been one of the sailors there and listened to this A confession of faith. Knowing the problem that you were in at that moment, I wonder which of these words would have leaped out at you. Let me read his confession again, and you tell me which of these words that he uses is the one that's going to catch your attention. He answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What's the key word here? I think sea. Sea. He's talking about a God who made the sea. And what is their problem? The sea. And so they hit on something here. And they said, what have you done? And somehow they knew he was running from the Lord. Uh, We're not told that earlier in this chapter, but Jonah apparently had told them. I wonder how he conveyed this. What what is it that Jonah would have said to them? Hey, guys, I'm running from the Lord. How How would he express this? Somehow they knew that he was in flight from God, and the sea is getting worse, and uh, they ask him, what can we do, and his answer is what? Uh, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and this storm will calm down. Now, Jonah has very little regard for human life. Up to this point, he's expressed no concern for the sailors that are on board the ship, he's not tried to do anything to help or to alleviate in the situation nor has he been concerned about his own life he's totally unconcerned about the danger that they're all in and is doing nothing to alleviate it but here he says throw me overboard and the sea will calm down now to throw him overboard means what? he's going to die by drowning. That's going to be his end. If they throw him overboard, he's going to die by drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. And they're reluctant to do this. I mean, after all, his deity might hold them in some way accountable for his death. (laughs) And so they're reluctant to do this. They have more concern for human life than Jonah the prophet seems to have. And, uh, And so... They did instead their best to row back to land. Now probably in Jonah's day, 8th century B.C., the way sailors would uh, navigate on the Mediterranean is they would hug the coastline as much as they could and probably in some cases never get much out of sight of land, just not going out into the very middle of the Mediterranean unless they had to cross it, but just kind of hugging the land going westward over to Spain. And so now they're trying to row to land. They probably can see land, and they're trying to row to it. And uh, it says that uh, they they made this attempt to row. Now the word that's used for rowing here is not the ordinary word for rowing a boat. It really means to dig, to dig. So if you picture... People uh, manning oars on a boat, they're digging, as it were, with these oars, finding it very laborious and very difficult to make their way because of the storm that they're in. They're digging at the oars, as it were, and, uh, and so they were not able to make progress like they had hoped. So as a result, they do what? They toss uh, Jonah overboard and uh, and uh, ask that the Lord not hold them uh, accountable for the death of an innocent person. For you, Lord, they say, have done as you pleased. But they took Jonah, threw him overboard. This is verse 15. And the raging sea grew calm. Now, Verse 16 says that this the men greatly feared the Lord. They're talking about Jonah's Lord, the God that Jonahs associated with. They greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, one of the characteristics of the book of Jonah is everything gets compressed and said in a very few words. I don't think this kind of sacrifice is taking place on the ship. People in the ancient world would not normally do that sort of thing. They'd get that they would want to get back to a temple, and a place of worship to do this. So I take it that uh, that verse 15 probably, uh, or pardon me, verse 16 is probably talking about what happened after they did get back to land, because they feared Jonah's Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord in a temple or a religious setting, and they made vows uh, to uh, the Lord. So what a wonderful account here of a person in flight uh, from God. Uh, if you've never had occasion to do this sort of thing or to think this sort of thing, it may not seem all that relevant to you now, but storing it away in the back of your mind, you'll probably get there at some point. We We all have struggles in our faith at some point, and this is Um, a story that can really help us with that. But what does it mean so far as our lives are concerned? Uh, God's Word is given to us not as a history book, just to tell us what happened to characters back in the 8th century, for example. But God's Word is timeless. It has application for our lives as well. And so what are some of the points that we could draw from what these verses are telling us in the book of Jonah. Well, for one thing, we need to be aware of the fact that God's servants do experience failure. And sometimes they seek to justify their failure. One of the worst kinds of failure in the, in the spiritual life is to be in flight from God and to be finding ways to rationalize or justify your behavior. And Jonah's pretty good at this. He's a servant of the Lord, no question about that. He's a prophet. But he has experienced failure in his life. And guess what? He has found a way theologically to justify his failure. He thinks he's right to be angry at what God is likely to do in forgiving uh, the Ninevites. Um, Folks, we all struggle with uh, inconsistency and sometimes with failure. The worst thing we can do in moments like that is to seek to justify the failure that has come about in our life. How much better to acknowledge it and to seek God's grace and forgiveness and restoration. And then, uh, what about this? Our disobedience to God sometimes puts other people at great risk. Why are the sailors near death themselves? It's not because of what they have done on this occasion. It's because of what Jonah has done. His disobedience to God is affecting not just himself, but his disobedience to God is affecting the people around him. May I say to you that your sin, the sin in your life or the sin in my life, seldom affects just you or just me. Usually there are ripples to sinful choices and sinful behavior. Our choices affect not just us, they affect the people around us. Sometimes the people we love the most and are dearest to us, our disobedience to God, sometimes puts the people around us uh, at great risk. And uh, they have to suffer sometimes great consequences because of the failure that we accept in our own life. And then, what about this notion? Disobedience to God is very costly and, in fact, self-destructive. Do we think about that? Disobedience to to God sometimes seems like a rational choice that we might make. Uh, Sometimes the grass seems greener on the other side of the fence. Sometimes... A wrong choice appeals to us with an attraction that's hard to resist. But disobedience to God is very costly and is, in fact, self-destructive. God is not in the business of withholding good things from us because he doesn't want us to have good things. He does sometimes withhold things from us that we don't need or that would bring disaster and difficulty in our life. And our disobedience to God... Uh, can become very, very costly and sometimes self-destructive. Well, even when we don't walk the walk, we may still be able to talk the talk without even realizing our own hypocrisy. Jonah's pretty good at making a theological statement. I can't quibble with him for his statement of faith He has a good statement of faith. I agree with his statement of faith. He can talk the talk. But does he walk the walk? Notice how there can be a huge gap, an inconsistency between these two things. You can be so on target theologically and biblically and be so far off target in terms of spiritual life or obedience to God. These two things do not always go together. And sometimes people who are really good at formulating theology are not so good at living for God and serving God with their life and trying to fulfill God's commission in their life. Well, sometimes the storms of life are God's means of getting the attention of his wayward servants. This is what happened with Jonah. Why did the storm come? It wasn't just a freak accident of nature. God sent the storm in Jonah chapter 1. Why did he send it? He sent it to arrest Jonah in his course of life and in the choices he was making. God sent the storm to get Jonah's attention. Has God ever sent a storm, so to speak? Some difficulty, some problem? into your life as a way of getting your attention? The Lord does this sometimes. God sometimes sends a problem into our life as a way of saying, hold the phone. Think about what you're doing. Get back on track. Now, I'm not suggesting that all problems originate that way, but some do. Sometimes God sends a difficulty, a storm in life as a way of getting our attention and bringing us to the point of repentance and of acceptance of God's will. And then sometimes and this is a surprising thought to me but sometimes the ungodly are more compassionate with regard to human needs than true believers are. How can it be that the sailors on board this ship who are just absolute pagans can be more interested in preserving life than God's prophet, Jonah, is. Well, this happens sometimes, doesn't it? Can you think of situations where ungodly people, people who make no profession of faith in Christ, yet somehow are moved with compassion when they see human needs and they do something about it, sometimes more quickly than God's people do? And and so we see that in this this story. So the story of Jonah running from God is a story about an 8th century prophet, yes, to be sure. It's also a story about you and a story about me because we do this sometimes. And the way God dealt with Jonah is sometimes the way he deals uh, with us. Uh, let's not run from God. Let's not refuse God's commission on our life. Let's not resist what after all is the best thing that could happen for us and that is the fulfillment of God's will for our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these Believing folks that are here today, and I ask that you will help all of us to live for you, to accept your will for our lives, to not be in flight or in resistance to that. And most of all, Lord, if you're speaking to someone about their need of trusting Christ as Savior, we pray certainly that that person would not run from you at a moment like this, but would turn and receive the gift of your grace and forgiveness through Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. So we'll have about a 15-minute break and we'll reconvene right here.